Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives, and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the podcast on a one-time basis by sending a check to Adam Graham, P.O. Box 15913, that's 15913, Boise, Idaho, 83715. You can also become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month by going to patreon.greatdetectives.net. Well, now it is time for this week's episode of Dragnet. The original air date, September the 24th, 1949, and the title is The Brickbat Slayer. Here's another in NBC's great parade of new shows. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. Detective Sergeant, you're assigned to homicide. A mad killer is loose in the city. In every instance, he leaves the murder weapon behind. There are no fingerprints, no clues to the killer's identity. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, June 3rd. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was off duty reporting back in on an emergency call. It was 3.57 a.m. when I got to the basement of the city hall. The carpool. Let's go, Friday. Sorry to call you back in. Couldn't be helped. All right, Ben. Okay, Skipper. What's up, Ben? Double murder. When? I don't know. Found out about it 40 minutes ago. Got any ideas? Roughly same M.O. Was that 6413 Norwich, Skipper? No, 6430. What do you mean, the same M.O.? The same guy. Brickbat killer. How many does this make? Counting tonight, four. Got anything at all? A smudged fingerprint we can't even classify. Sounds like a smart operator. We gotta get him. We have to shake down the city from one end to the other. Big job, Skipper. Big killer. That's 
6 a.m., we pulled up in front of 6430 Norwich Drive, a small group of bungalow apartments facing on an oval-shaped garden court. Two uniformed officers were stationed at the door to the apartment. Hi, Chief. Hi, fellas. We went inside. Wellbird from Homicide was waiting for us. This way. In here. Well, there they are. Yeah. Mother, daughter. Joe, on the floor beside the bed. Yeah, a red brick. Miss Hafters, we know how you must feel about all this, but would you please try to answer a few more questions for us? Yes. All right. Poor Margaret. Miss Hafters, how long had you known Mrs. Diaz and her daughter? Nine years. This November, they moved next door. I remember it so well. We got along right from the start. And as far as you know, the only close friends the mother and daughter had live right here in the apartment court? Yes. Margaret was a pretty girl, but she was no chaser, no boyfriend. Very close to her mother. The two of them, very close. Did they keep any amount of valuables in the apartment? Money, jewelry, things like that? Oh, no. Mrs. Diaz and Margaret didn't have much, you know. Very modest income. They both worked. And you can think of no good reason. Oh, no, no. Oh, poor Margaret. Poor Mrs. Diaz. Lying in there. Shocked. Wellberg. Yes, Sergeant. Would you show Ms. Hafters back to her apartment? Sure, Sergeant. Thank you, Ms. Hafters. We appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Oh, Mark. Oh, Well, Joe, let's check with Ed. He's back in the bedroom. You get anything from the neighbors? The usual, Ed. No jealous boyfriends, ex-husbands, nothing like that. Boys find any evidence yet, Skipper? I'm still working on it. You got any theories? Well, we know the killings were all done by the same guy. Mm -hmm. Cuts the same pattern out of the window screen. Cuts the same pattern with a glass cutter out of the window. Reaches in and flips the lock. All right, where's that leave us? And before he gets inside, he makes sure there are only women in the house. That means he probably watches the house for a few days. Once he gets inside, he wants only one thing, to kill. He's never taken any valuables. As far as we can tell, he's never searched for any. What kind of a man works like that? I think the guy's kill crazy. Hey, fellas. Yes, Donner? Here's a break. Two fair prints. One thumb, one forefinger. What'd you get, Pete? Only got nine points. Not enough to go into court, but enough to make him. We'll know him when we get him. Yeah. Found the prints on the lens of the old lady's eyeglasses. Probably knocked him off the night table when he went after her. And when he was done, he put him back on the table. Yeah. Had blood on his hands, see? Yeah. That's funny, isn't it? Why would he go to the trouble of picking up the woman's glasses after he killed her? We'll ask him when we find him. Hi, Ben. Joe, might have something for you. We can use it, Link. Hold it just a minute. Yeah. Crime lab, Jones. Yeah. Yeah, all right. I'll tell him. Right, Ed. Backstrand. If you're through checking the victim's clothes by 8 o'clock, you can knock off for sleep until noon. What if we're not through? Take it up with the chaplain. Here's what I wanted to show you. Over here. A couple of casts. Bare footprint. That's right. Those from the Diaz place? Found them outside the dining room window in the flower bed. Take a look. Mm-hmm. Good cast. Size nine. Ten. Uh, missing toe there, huh? Left foot, first toe. That's lucky. 
Well, then the guy took his shoes off before he went in that house. That's the way it looks. You leave any other prints, Lee? Three, with his shoes on. Here they are, here. Yeah. How would you say the guy is built, Lee? Oh, from the impression, pretty heavy man. There's no full length of stride, or I might give you an idea of his height. How about the bricks, Lee? Here they are, all three of them. Used this one in the first murder, this one in the second, this one last night. Leaves them around like calling cards, and there's no way to check them. You'll never get a fingerprint off a common red brick like this, Ben. Surface is too rough. Well, we got an idea of his weight. We know that the first toe's missing from his left foot. That's something. The one we had yesterday. We can check that missing toe in the amputation file, Joe. Yeah. Well, we better get back. Pete ought to have those prints ready, too. Thanks a lot, Lee. Okay, fellas. Say, they post the bodies yet? Yeah, they're doing it now. Same as the first two. The brain? Concussion, hemorrhage. They didn't have a chance. Hold it a minute. Time lap, Jones. Sure, just a minute. Either one of you, fellas. I'll get it, Joe. Okay. Yeah, Romero. Yeah. Good, we'll be right over. They got a make on those two fingerprints. Okay, Joe. Single print file. Made him on the index finger. Let me see, Pete. Uh-huh. Take a look, Ben. Yeah. Doesn't look like a killer, does he, Joe? Kind of nice looking. That's right, Pete. They said the same thing about John Dillinger. The name at the top of the make sheet read Carlos Richard Monterey. Male, Caucasian, age 19, height 5 feet 11 inches, weight 165 pounds, dark brown hair, dark brown eyes. Last known address... 1663 Naples Street, Los Angeles. Previous arrest, one, auto theft, February 8th, 1936. That was all. Ben and I had been expecting more. The information on the mama sheet for Monterey was 13 years old. So was the picture. So was the description. So was the address. In 13 years, a man can change in a thousand ways. So can his habits, his appearance, his address. In 13 years, everything can change except two things. A man's fingerprints and a physical deformity. (laughs) Missing toe on left foot. Carlos Richard Monterey. Here it is, Joe. 1663 Naples. Yeah, come on. Somebody's coming. Mm-hmm. Yes? What is it? We're police officers. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Oh, yes. Uh, would you like to come in? Thank you, ma'am. Yes? Would you mind telling us your name? Monterey. Isabel Monterey. What is it you want? You're married? Yes. My husband is Francisco Monterey. Would you explain why you are here? We thought you might be able to help us. We're looking for a man named Carlos Monterey. I don't understand you. We're looking for a man. We'd like to talk to him. Do you know where he is? Yes. Carlos is dead seven years ago. He's dead. My husband told me. Does your husband know Carlos, or did he know him? He was his brother. What about your husband's parents, Miss Monterey? Where are they? They're both dead. Sometime now. Have you ever met Carlos? No, never. I've only heard of him. What have you heard of him, Miss Monterey? Do not ask me. 
This is important, very important. Francisco wouldn't like it if I told you. It's important, Miss Monterey, believe us. Carlos, he's sick. His mind. For eight years, Francisco has not seen him, not heard from him. He thinks he's dead. But he only thinks so, Miss Monterey. No one's told him his brother's dead. He just thinks so. What else is there to think? Where's your husband now? At his work, the store, and where I street near Maine. Grocery. Monterey Cadwell Grocery. Here's your change. Thank you, Mrs. Myers. Now, look, officers, you know how it is. You don't like to let these things get out. That's why I trust you. You can trust us, Mr. Monterey. We just want to check on a few things. Oh, fine. Always glad to help out if I can. Well, can you tell us if your brother was ever in a mental institution in his life? Oh, I know there was nothing wrong. 1923. Got a little bad, so Mom and Dad had to put him away for a while, just till he calmed down. I remember the day. Sometimes. Dumb, stupid kid. What do he know? Standing there by himself in the train, crying. The public nurse, stupid way he cried. What do you do? I cried too. I was only 10, Sergeant. I, I saw him go. He was alone. Later on, Mr. Monterey, your brother was released from the state institution. Yeah, he was 16. And then he started running around, playing tough, carried a gun, lived by himself. He never came around. He dropped from sight about 1938. You haven't heard from him since then? Nothing. Never seen him. Do you know of anybody who might have seen him? There was a girl he had. Uh, Anita something. On Soteo Street. Uh, Anita Martin, yeah, that's it. Soteo Street. Maybe she's seen him. Ask her. Maybe she's seen him. Carlos? Carlos Monterey? Uh, not in a year. Last March he was in. When I was working at the Peacock, down on South Main. He came in, we talked for a while. That was all. And you haven't seen Carlos for the past two months or so? I tell you, no. Has he written to you? Has he phoned you? Oh. Once, three weeks ago, he phoned. Here. He left a message with my girlfriend. But he didn't call back again. Now, that's it. That's all I know. Thank you, Miss Martin. Here's our card. If he does call, uh, you'll let us know. Yeah, I'll let you know. You like Carlos, is that it, Anita? Like him? No, I didn't like him. He was funny, but he was nice. You know, I pitied him. Why did you pity him, Miss Martin? Well, he was a good fellow who was strange. He could smile, you know. He had a nice smile, but you could tell he was never laughing. There was something in his mind. Something. Oh, I don't know. At least a year, closer to two, I haven't seen Carlos. No letters, not a card, nothing. He was in the East the last time I heard. When was that? A year ago, January. I was in here. He sent me a calendar. Sometimes he could get along fine, very well. Other times, terrible. We couldn't keep him down. How'd he manage to stay out of jail that way, Vicente? I don't know. Sometimes he should have been in jail five times over. And you say you don't know of anybody who might have a recent picture of Carlos, a snapshot? No. No, no one I can think of. Okay, Vincent, here's our card. If you do think of somebody, let us know, will you? It'll help. Sure, glad to. If I hear of anybody. What kind of a day is it outside? Hot? Hot.
By five o'clock that afternoon, Ben and I were certain of one thing. Carlos Monterey was in the city of Los Angeles, somewhere. We drove back to the office and told Ed Backstrand about our interviews with Monterey's relatives and his friends. Inquiries and requests for further identification and information on him were immediately relayed to the state mental institutions. The 13-year-old picture of Monterey taken from the files was copied and distributed with a note of caution as to the age of the photograph. An APB was sent out. Stakeouts were placed at the home of Monterey's brother, at the brother's store, and at the apartment of Anita Martin. A special detail of 300 men was ordered to join the dragnet already in operation. The details at the airport and the bus terminals were alerted, as well as the details at the Union Depot and the main post office. By 6 o'clock that night, almost 1,000 men were actively working at the job of tracking down Carlos Monterey. At 6.30 p.m., Ben and I drew a four-hour relief period. We drove out to Ben's place, and his wife fixed us some dinner. At 10.30 that night, we reported into the office, picked up Ed Backstrand, and we drove out to join the manhunt. operation until 5 o'clock that morning. Ben and I took turns driving. Actually, the tremendous job of scouring 500 square miles of city for one man was only beginning. Unless there was an unexpected break, the search for Carlos Monterey could wear on for weeks. It did. Night after night, the manhunt went on, and day after day, there was no break. Sixteen days later, on a Sunday night, I went to bed early. I read a while, and then I turned off the lamp and went to sleep. Talking. Sorry, Joe. Get in here as fast as you can. Hmm? What's the matter? That girl Monterey knew. The one you talked to? Yeah. She left her apartment, went to her girlfriend's. Yeah? She's dead. There it is. Ordinary red brick. Found it by the body. How long has she been dead, Skipper? Well, she was seen alive about an hour and a half ago. Got three bare footprints, good length of stride... Found them down in the lot beside the house. What do they look like? Same guy. First toe missing from the left foot. The same weight impression. Should be about five foot eleven. That checks out with what you got, doesn't it? All right, so it's the same guy. What about those shoes we found, Lee? Yeah, they correspond. They were impregnated with foreign matter. What'd you find? Particles of lettuce leaf, dry onion skin, traces of red cabbage. Maybe a vegetable counter. Maybe. What about the city wholesale market down on Front Street? What about any market in Los Angeles? No, Lee, that wholesale market is big enough to hide anybody. Hundreds of transients work in there. Some of them even sleep there. For a guy like Monterey, it'd be perfect. That's a fair guess. Check it when it opens. They open at 2 a.m. 2.30 now. All right, get back to the office and pick up as many extra men as you need. Get down there right away. Okay, Ed. Now, you know he's a rough one, so watch it. On Monday, June 23rd, at two minutes past 3 a.m., we pulled up at the city wholesale produce market. With the exception of 54 police officers in plain clothes who mingled with the buyers and sellers, business went along as usual. The market itself covered almost three square blocks in the lower part of the downtown area. It was divided off into hundreds of individual stalls by flimsy wooden partitions. To make the search even tougher, the place was crowded. 
For the first 45 minutes, we had the men circulate at random through the crowd on the chance that one of them might spot Carlos Monterey from the 13-year-old picture. It didn't happen. After that, we started a systematic canvas. We talked to the customers. We talked to the managers of the different booths. We gave them Monterey's description. We showed them his picture. Nobody recognized him. We checked the employment records one by one. Not a sign. Sorry, Sergeant. I'd like to help. I've never seen the guy. Okay, Mr. Snyder, thank you. We sure pick the sweet jobs, don't we? Oh, yeah. We could spend a year at this. Oh, Sergeant, Sergeant Friday. Yeah, Kamansky. Did you find something? Guy at the booth over there against the far wall. Thinks he might have hired Monterey a couple of days ago. Come on, Ben. Where? Over there, Sergeant. You showing him Monterey's picture? Yeah, he thinks it might be him. Mr. Fresnetti, this is Sergeant Romero, Sergeant Friday. Well, yes, I told you, boy, Sergeant. This fellow Carlos, I hired him to help uh, last Thursday. Big rush for me now, so I hired him. You sure he's a man? In the picture? I think so. A little older, maybe. Oh, but I know faces. He's the man. You, you're looking for him? You say you hired this man last Thursday. That's right. It's a big rush for me now. In the morning, I, I hired him Thursday. He worked uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But he don't show up this morning, so I got no use. Too many men to pick from. He don't show up, I let him go. What kind of work did he do for you? Same as he did for Schiller down there. Heavy work. Moving the stores, they're cleaning up. What kind of produce does Schiller handle, Mr. Francinetti? Fancy, very fancy vegetables. Choice. New potatoes, expensive red onions. Schiller sells to the big hotels. Does Schiller handle brown onions, Mr. Francinetti? Oh, only the best. Big dealer that Schiller sells it to the big hotels. How long has this Carlos been working around the market? Oh, I don't know. Is it just like the rest? First he worked for me, then uh, Largo Massini, then a Schiller. Hey, why are you looking so hard for him? He, he stole something? He murdered somebody. Him? Mamma mia, murder. Do you have any idea where Carlos lives? Oh, me? No, no. And if he comes back here, I tell him to get out. I got nothing to do with this trouble. No, you'll tell him nothing, Mr. Fresnetti. Here's our card. If you see Monterey again, call us. Say nothing to him. Oh, sure, sure. I'd ring him. Uh, Joe, call the chief at the office, will you? Message just came in. Thanks, Al. Come on, Ben. Yeah, there's a phone booth. See? No, I don't. Where? Straight ahead, little left. Oh, yeah. You got a nickel? Let's see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you are. Thanks. I'll see what Ed wants. Two five one one. Two five one one. Chief of detectives, always Hannon. Hi, Mike. Ed there. Ed, take it on extension two, will you? Backstrand talking. Friday, Ed. Move fast on this one, Joe. What's up? Main post office. Carlos Monterey picked up a letter there less than five minutes ago. Come on, Ben. There's Ed over there with Welberg. Yeah. Traffic short jammed up around here. Hi, Ed. Friday, Romero. You all set, Wilberg? All set, Chief. Spring Street to San Pedro. Sunset the first. Got it covered. Good. What's the story? Post office detail tipped us off. Five minutes after eight, a man answering Carlos Monterey's description picked up a letter at the general delivery window. That was 16 minutes ago. Who spotted him? Sam Lane. He got a look at him just as he was leaving the window. Called to him to stop, but Monterey ran. Lane called me, and we threw a net over the area for six blocks around. And Monterey's still somewhere inside this area? I don't know how he could have gotten out. What's next? Well, I'll give him an hour to break for it. After that, we start a house-to-house search of the whole area. Stop all pedestrian and vehicular traffic for identification. You're going to jam up the depot traffic. That's cheaper than murder, Romero. Get going. 
The first hour, we counted off in five-minute segments. Like Backstrand, we felt close enough to Monterey to touch him. But he still wasn't there. The north and south ends of the blockade started to move in, slowly. Searching every store, every house, every conceivable place where a man might hide out. In the meantime, Ben and I worked the Spring Street side of the blockade, watching the faces of the pedestrians as they came through, one by one, examining all vehicles and their drivers. The morning wore on, the sun came out, and it started to get warm. By 11 o'clock that morning, Monterey still had not been found. The temperature was 93 in Los Angeles. It was still climbing. The search went on. At 10 minutes past 2 p.m., Backstrand made the round. How's it look, Skipper? Not good. Going slow. How much longer you figure? I don't know. It'll go to after dark, that's sure. District down here is like a rat's nest. Yeah. Nothing? Nothing. But he's someplace inside this blockade. He's got to be. Any chance getting relief for the men in our squad? Some of them been working straight through since yesterday. Uh, I'll see. Check with me around five this afternoon. Thank you, Skipper. Keep a sharp lookout. One slip. That's all it takes. The search went on. At 3 o'clock that afternoon, the temperature was 95. We sweltered and we waited. At 3.45, Backstrand sent a squad of men into the Union Depot to search it from top to bottom. There was one false alarm when one of the men thought he saw Monterey slipping out a side door into a taxi. He turned out to be a train conductor. At 25 minutes past 4, Backstrand passed along the order to our detail to start moving in, house by house. It was a tedious job and it went slow. The men were tired. At 5.30, the relief squad showed up. Ben and I stayed on. After another two hours of house-to-house searching, the trap was narrowed down to a three-square-block area, a single block wide and three blocks long. It started to get dark. Backstrand ordered out batteries of floodlights. By 8 p.m., the cordon closed in around the last two square blocks. Lines are all set, Skipper. Ready to move. Good. What do you think? I will know pretty soon, one way or the other. Frank, keep that traffic moving. All right, you two, get going. See you later, Skipper. Joe, let's take a look in here. Okay. Sure is an old building. Yeah. Where'd Kamansky go? Oh, no, he's here a minute ago. Oh, wait, there's his flashlight. It's down at the end of the corridor there. He's signaling. Yeah, come on. Kamansky? Yeah. Down below, Sergeant, in the basement. Come on. Monterey? He's been there, I think. Yeah, this way. Where? Over here. Now, watch the step. The light's bad. Here he is. Says he's the janitor. Oh, my head. He's been slugged. All right, come on. How'd it happen? Can you tell us? Yeah, a man, a big man hit me. I came down to empty the baskets. He hit me and ran. Ran over to the new building. The new building? Is that the one next door? Yeah, just a few minutes ago. Nobody's come out of this building for the past half hour. Every door in the place is guarded. Oh, no, not the doors. He went through the tunnel. I saw him. Over there's the tunnel. I'll take a look, Joe. Mm. Yeah, the tunnel. Connects the two basements. Same company, old building, new building. The tunnel connects the basement. Joe, come on. Yeah. Kamansky, get out the back strand. Tell him what's happened. Right, Sergeant. And call an ambulance. Right. All right, Ben. Through the tunnel. Watch where you're going. The light's bad. Yeah, it is. That a door up ahead there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Good. There's a stairway. Come on. Watch the doors. Joe, the elevator. They're both on the third floor. Let's head for the stairs. Ben, come on. Okay. 
Joey's in the elevator. Joey's going down. Well, we'll never make it on the stairs. No, look. The other elevator. The control lever's bent. Let's try it anyway. Yeah. All right, kick the control lever. Kick it, Ben. That's good. All right, Ben, knock the lever back. Come on, quick. Yeah. What's the matter? No, it's jammed. We're going fast. All right, let's kick it. Here. Yeah. Yeah, that does it. Can you reach the door control? Wait just a minute. I'll see. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's still in the building. Both elevators are here now. Yeah. Oh. Down the hall, Ben. The office on the left, I think. Yeah. Okay, here we are. All right, keep clear of the door. All right, Monterey, put on that gun and come on out. I'll kill you! I'll kill you! I'll kill you! Okay, Joe, let's take it. Watch it, Ben. He's throwing everything he can get his hands on. Nice-looking guy. Clean cut. Yeah. Doesn't figure, does it? What's that? My wife would say he doesn't look like a killer, does he? What's a killer supposed to look like? Carlos Monterey was examined by five different psychiatrists appointed by the Superior Court and was found to be sane. He was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the 17th in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of W.A. Wharton, acting chief of police, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to motorcycle patrolman John Kramer of the El Paso, Texas Sheriff's Department, who on the afternoon of April 26, 1940, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. You're tuned for the stars on NBC. Welcome back. Well, this is another case that moves from a brutal crime scene to simple clothes that put our heroes on the right track. It's such a great formula and really works time after time with all the different turns and variations an investigation can take. Now, you might have been wondering how the criminal was found guilty, even though he was obviously disturbed. The short answer to that, and I'm offering my non-lawyer explanation, is that legal insanity requires that whatever disturbance you have renders you unable to understand your act or its nature or the difference between right and wrong, and nothing in today's episode indicates that that was the case. Friday's question at the end as to what a killer looks like is a good one. Media portrayals of killers then and now often imagine a certain type or a certain look. There's makeup that can be applied to actors that can in certain ways uh, reflect menace and certainly uh, 
actors can put that into their performance even without makeup and, you know, camera work and things like that. And then, of course, you have stereotypes about how criminals look. One of my favorite audio dramas of all time, Chimes of Midnight, made fun of that when uh, suspects were being asked who they suspected was the murderer, and they would give an answer, and when asked why, they'd say, well, because he or because she has beady eyes. But none of that really counts in real life. And if you can get citizens distinguishing between fantasy and reality as much as possible, that makes the job of police officers a lot easier. Well, now we turn to listener comments and feedback. And we start out on YouTube, and Lavender writes, Love Jack Webb, and Stave says, Thanks Adam, you rock. And over on the site called X, I posted the graphic for the podcast Spotify Rap, which shows on Spotify an increase in listeners and streams and new followers. Elisa said, uh, in response to this, I discovered your podcast this year and have thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much, Elisa. Hope I pronounced that correctly. And then I received an email from David, a uh, Patreon supporter. At the detective sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month, he, he writes, I went to the first episode of Box 13 in the shows and discovered that it is also your episode 0001. This was like finding the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not only the original Dan Holiday, but the original Adam Graham in the first four Box 13 episodes and the original 16-inch recordings. You were one excitable guy back then, 2009, in those first recordings, and no commentary, just pushing it out there as fast as you could. Suddenly, on episode 21, you open up with a lot of commentary uh, with where the show was going. Some of it was not quite uh, well-structured uh, well structured in presentation as you speak now. I only point this out to show how well you progress through the years. The host intro is better, the commentary is better, and you should be rightly proud to improve, have improved in over a decade as the Great Detectives podcast host. It seems in the middle years you consciously slowed your speaking pace down a lot, but have since revved it up a little. I like your lively pace now, and I appreciate that you sometimes deliver some drawn-out, complex commentary that usually seems well thought out in practice. You really have an experience, and if you didn't start out as a complete expert on old-time radio, you sure are now. Your faithful listener. Well, thanks so much. Thank you for your kind comments, and I appreciate the observation. Now, uh, of course... All of the original episodes from the first few seasons of The Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, all five days a week, are available as part of our Volume 1 feed at volume1.greatdetectives.net. And actually, episode 0001 wasn't actually the first episode that I did. You see, I wanted listeners to my old-time Dragnet podcast to be able to subscribe to the podcast from day one, which means I had to have an active feed with something on there. Now, of course, this year when I launched the old-time radio snack wagon, 
I put a podcast trailer out and people could subscribe to the podcast after listening to the trailer, but this was before podcast trailers, and that makes me sound incredibly old. We didn't have those fancy podcast trailers, so I did a full episode. And I opened that episode with about 10 minutes of commentary where, in a sort of very disjointed fashion, I talked about my plans for the podcast. I did not receive favorable feedback on that particular approach. And so in early weeks, I may have been overcorrecting. I should also add that that is the only episode that I've edited down because there are people who find the episode 000, listen to it, think that's what the whole podcast is going to be like and get, you know, turned off to the whole thing. That is preserved my whole intro from that uh, pilot episode is preserved in the season one commentary that's part of volume one. And when I do listen to early commentaries, which I've had an occasion to do as we've been getting volume one posted and now into volume two, with volume one and with also old time radio Superman, I too am kind of blown away by the speed at which I started talking when I was first getting started. I'm like, where did this energy come from? I mean, I I know where it came from. It came from nervousness. And I also, I got the idea, and I think it may have had something to do with, like, the sort of church culture that I I grew up around. Uh, it, It was the idea that passion means being loud and being fast. Those two things. I've kind of come to appreciate more as I've grown older that sometimes passion, eloquence, what have you, can come with variation of pitch and variation of speed, and it doesn't have to be all that fast. But slowing myself down is always a challenge whenever I'm doing anything with communications. And actually, throughout so much of the early years of the episode, uh, podcast. What's kind of surprised me as I've gone back and reviewed so many episodes is that there were, you know, not a whole lot of commentary. Often a little bit of intro at the beginning and then at the end maybe a sentence or two and we're done. Which I wouldn't have expected because we were still getting all, you know, when we got the negative feedback and reviews, it was, you, you would think that I was going on like, Jefferson Smith at the end of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But so many of those episodes were two or two and a half minutes of me talking, combined opening and closing. And I was not an expert on old-time radio when I started. I knew some things, but some of the things I knew, to paraphrase a president, weren't so. I don't know if you could start out today with a podcast knowing as little about the topic when I started out as I did. So I'm really grateful for the time that I got into this. The mid to late 2000s with not only Great Detectives, but the Old Time Dragnet Show and the Old Time Radio Superman Show. And there was a real opportunity to learn as you go. 
And I think that on balance, people were incredibly gracious and encouraging. And that really helped me just to be able to stick with it and to be able to learn and get better. And I, I've i always been open to constructive feedback as opposed to feedback that is nasty or, or out of touch with reality, quite frankly. And even this year, we, we've made some changes in some subtle and not so subtle ways. For example, we, we've changed the show notes and some of the things that we do in them. I appreciated your note and all the encouragement that I've received from so many listeners over the years, which has really allowed the podcast to change and grow. Well, now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Pat, Patreon supporter since September 2020, currently supporting the podcast at the rookie level of $2 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Pat. And that will do it for today. If you are enjoying the podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. And if you're listening to the podcast on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel, like the video, and click the notification bell along with leaving a comment if you like. We will be back next Saturday with another episode of Dragnet. And tomorrow, of course, will be our Sunday Encore. And also check out Video Theater, uh, videotheater.greatdetectives.net for one of our great uh, Christmas special encores. And then be sure to listen on Monday when we resume our regular lineup with The Falcon, where... I'm engaged to be married. Congratulations. I'm not sure they're in order. That's what I want you to find out. Well, I'll just second, Gloria, I don't go in for petty snooping if you're just trying to find out whether your boyfriend is stepping out on you. No, me. Mr. Waring, I'm not concerned about other women. Mm-hmm. All right, then. What I want to know is, what does he do for a living? Didn't he tell you? <laughs> yes, a number of things. But you don't believe him? I did until yesterday. But they're too fantastic. All about big business deals, but he won't give me any details. Also, secret, I can't help wondering if maybe he's mixed up in something illegal. Otherwise, why would he try to keep things from me? I don't know. Well, what'll it cost to have you investigate? Quite a lot, but I'll give you some advice for nothing. What's that? Forget him. I can't. As long as you have such serious doubts about Just him. Just the same, I... I love him. Well, then, what are you doing here? Hoping you'll prove my doubts are wrong. And if they aren't? I don't know. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.